So thanks everyone for tuning in to another Two Scientists podcast. Now, as it happens, a couple of weeks ago, we found ourselves in Philadelphia having a good old drink with our Pint of Science team there and speaking to our guest speaker that we have back here this evening, Megan Detloff. Unfortunately, we hadn't planned for it being the eve of Halloween. And so um, we found that it was rather noisier than we expected. And this is what it sounded like. Not ideal, I'm sure you'll agree. But thankfully, Megan agreed to re-record this episode, so through the wonders of technology, and more specifically Skype, here we are again today. Thanks for taking the time out for round two, as it were. Oh yeah, no problem, hi. How's your evening going so far? It's going pretty well, I'm in the middle of writing a grant, so... It's one of those, you know, science never stops moments. So we take a little break for a for a beer and, and have a little chat about what I do. Yes, indeed. Cheers to that. But before you tell us what you do, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into what you do? Uh, it was kind of an interesting journey. So I started out, I, when I went to college, I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and I... I started as a freshman as a chemical engineering student, and I actually ended up graduating with a degree. But relatively early on, I realized that uh, pumps and pipes and flow rates and chemical reactions weren't necessarily uh, what I wanted to do. And I happened to go to a career fair and um, put my resume out to a lot of places, and I ended up getting a a student internship at uh, Pfizer, which was at the time the research labs were there in Ann Arbor. They had a site there that actually backed right up onto the engineering campus. So I started in a lab, a neurodegeneration lab, uh, and my uh, PI there was Ed Hall, who has worked for many years as a pharmacologist, and then he still is working at University of Kentucky in the spinal cord and brain injury research center there. Um, And he gave me this opportunity, and I never looked back. So there I was, you know, really um, ingrained in lab work and running a lot of Western blots every week in and out. And, you know, I stayed there while I was a full-time student. Um, And it was his passion for what he did that really converted me from a chemical engineer to a neuroscientist. And the rest, as they say, is history. So I told my parents, I said, mom and dad, when I graduate from college, I think I'm going to go to graduate school in neuroscience. And they go, you're going to do what? (laughs) and I said, I'm going to go to graduate school in neuroscience, and they said, hmm, what's that? I said, well, it's where you study the brain, and their next question was, well, are you going to have a job after graduate school, and I said, (laughs) well, that's the plan, so I applied. I ended up at Ohio State University um, in Columbus, Ohio, um, where I worked with Michelle Basso, and I started really looking at spinal cord injury, examining, you know, the incidence and the development of neuropathic pain after spinal cord injury in particular, and also what sort of mechanisms underlie that. So what happens in the, in the uh, spinal cord uh, that causes these behavioral changes? The real part there was trying to develop these models and really understand the human condition and be able to mimic that in the laboratory setting. So a great thing about your research is that I actually feel really at home here because this is exactly the kind of thing that I was doing during my own graduate studies. Now, one of the potentially confusing things when you explain to people that you're a neuroscientist is that they instantly think that you're working on the brain. 
But there are actually two components to the nervous system. So the central nervous system, which is the brain in the spinal cord, and the peripheral nervous system, which kind of lies outside of that and does various things, including sensing your environment. And to me, the latter feels like a completely different organ. Right, exactly. So the peripheral nervous system is really an important part in, in terms of sensing, uh, you know, your surroundings. And I, what I always tell people is that, you know, your skin is your largest organ. And what, what I really study is tactile sensation. So what, what it feels like to hold somebody's hand or, you know, any, anything that, that, that really touches you, air from a ceiling fan, things like that. And these receptors are in our skin and they sense different things. They'll sense, you know, touch, or they'll sense temperature, or they'll sense pressure, or they'll sense, you know, chemicals. And they really relay the peripheral nervous system, these neurons, these receptors are attached to neurons, and they send the signal into the spinal cord. And then from there, the signal ascends the spinal cord up to your brain. And so, you know, there really is a, is a, is a lot that goes into this one signal of pain. And so, you know, one of the things after spinal cord injury, and in particular, you know, what, what I think is important to also distinguish in, in what I uh, study is that I'm studying a, a pain that's, that's not normal. When anyone says, what is pain, you know, something immediately comes to everybody's mind. And it might be a broken bone, it might be heartache, it might be, you know, emotional. And the real reality here for people with spinal cord injury and and also people with other types of of this chronic pain is that, you know, it's not the type of pain we get when we stub our toe on the coffee table and it goes away in five minutes. This is a pain that's everlasting. It's something that's described as burning, stabbing, piercing pain, and it really never goes away. A graduate student or a medical student who worked with me here at Drexel a few years ago, his name was Evan Smith, he um, he sort of coined this phrase for me and he said, you know, really this pain is the pain of everyday living. And I really like that um, terminology and I and I have since uh, stolen it and, and use it often because these are things like wearing a t-shirt is painful, the air from uh, the air conditioner or a breeze on a summer day can trigger an intense uh, painful sensation. And that's, that's just no way to live. Mm -hmm. So the nervous system, both peripheral and central, really after a trauma or in, in, you know, diabetic neuropathy or even, you know, chemotherapy induced pain, the anatomy changes and these different components can change and sort of make the system now, um, hyperactive or, um, certainly aberrant. And Your research is actually looking at ways to treat or reverse this kind of pain. And of course, I have all the spoilers from last time. (laughs) But it's pretty novel in the sense that you're using exercise as a potential treatment, right? So, you know, exercise is a really interesting and and fascinating uh, tool. And and in the lab, we, we like to think about exercise as a drug or as, as a way to boost the nervous system and sort of modulate, especially in, in our case, sensory systems. And exercise has been shown after spinal cord injury in particular to do many things. It uh, can prevent muscle atrophy or muscle wasting. So, uh, the you know, you maintain um, muscle mass. Uh, it can improve or increase the amount of neurotrophic factors 
in the spinal cord and the brain. Um, and neurotrophic factors are important because they're kind of like Gatorade for neurons and other cells within within the brain and spinal cord. So they're really a helpful, they really sort of support uh, the cells. The other thing that exercise does is it can also has the potential to reduce inflammation. And it can prevent all that toxicity that happens and is associated with, with secondary injury after spinal cord injury. So one of the things that we do in the lab is we start exercising our animals early after the injury. And we take them to the gym and we, we have them go and they, they essentially are on a treadmill for 20 minutes a day, five days a week. And we have them getting their workout in. And when we start that exercise early after their injury at about five days or seven days after their injury, the animals don't develop pain. And that's really striking, you know? So, so the difference is that an animal that has a sustained spinal cord injury, about 40% of them uh, will develop this hypersensitivity or this neuropathic chronic pain, this pain to the, to the equivalent of a t-shirt or a cat whisker is now something that's painful. And when we exercise, that goes away and their sensation stays normal, right? So that's really striking. So we take that 40% of animals, that turns in, if we exercise, turns into only 7%. So we see a drastic reduction in the incidence of pain after spinal cord injury. And what's also cool about that is when we look at the peripheral nervous system, when we look at those cells, those neurons that have the receptor in the skin, and then we look at their axon, which is basically their connector into the spinal cord, when we look at that, the axons, we see that there's a lot of plasticity compared to normal. And what plasticity means is that, you know, we see a change in the distribution and in the density or the number of these axons that are coming into the spinal cord that are potentially conveying uh, this painful information. So when we exercise, that sprouting or that plasticity is reduced and you don't, you don't see that this sort of aberrant anatomy. To me, that's a really important thing that we can use exercise to not only, you know, change um, the behavior, but we're also able to change the, the underlying neuroanatomy. And that's really a, a speaks highly of the power of exercise, right? What's also pretty interesting is that and important, I think, that's come out of my research. It just got accepted. Uh, the manuscript just got accepted. So I'm really excited about that. That's a big deal in our world. But, and the, the data, when we change the timing of exercise. So now instead of um, initiating exercise early after the injury before pain develops, we wait until after it develops and we do the same exercise. So the animals are going to the treadmill, they're going to the gym five days a week, 20 minutes a day. We can't reverse that pain. So the animals are now, even with the exercise that was able to prevent pain from uh, developing, it's not able to reverse it. And that's a little bit scary because it really speaks to, you know, we have to be aware of the timing of when we initiate these things. And maybe it's something to do with the intensity of the exercise that it needs to be for a longer duration. So instead of 20 minutes, it's an hour or instead of, you know, 10 meters a minute or 12 meters a minute, it needs to be a lot faster, shorter type uh, speed workouts if you're a runner, mm -hmm. um, that kind of thing. Um, and then there's also the consideration about what about the people who don't develop pain and they're living with a spinal cord injury um, and they want to exercise. So 
we modeled that in the lab too. And so we took animals that were injured that if they were going to develop pain would have already had it and they don't have pain. So we take our injured, no pain animals and we put them in the same exercise paradigm. And we found out that after two weeks of exercise that they actually developed pain. So that's something that was really shocking. And I think a caution that we can't just blindly say this is the regimen that you do, mm -hmm. right? And I think it, it really speaks to this idea of personalized medicine yep. or, you know, individual, you know, titering a plan. And I think that's why when people go to PT, it's not a big class. It's a one-on-one -on -one session. I think these types of things are, are really important. And I think this is an example of that also. So I guess what you're talking about there is changes in the perception of pain. Um, so what happens if you're looking at an, the anatomy? So what happens to the nerves themselves? What's really interesting in, in terms of the peripheral nervous system uh, neurons and their axons that come into the spinal cord in these two situations where we delayed exercise, either those that started without pain or those that started with pain, and we look at the plasticity of their axons, we see that both of those groups show a really robust sprouting of these axons. So that means they're taking up a larger distribution within the spinal cord that's associated with uh, sensory information. And there's a lot greater density of those fibers. And so you know, that is very similar to an unexercised animal that, that has this neuropathic pain. This, again, is evidence that, you know, exercise, while it can be good at some points, is either ineffective or could potentially be harmful or bad for uh, the underlying nervous system. Have you done any experiments on animals beforehand and afterwards to see if they potentially form some kind of intermediate group? We have not pre-treated with exercise or created sort of athletic rats or athlete rats and then done these uh, spinal cord injury experiments and look. But there is some data and there's a lot of data coming out actually in the traumatic brain injury field uh, and also in the multiple sclerosis field where they're looking at, it, in particular, animal experiments where the animals are exercised or training, uh, usually in a running wheel or some kind of treadmill type situation prior to their injury or prior to the induction of uh, an animal model of multiple sclerosis. And you see that exercise in a lot of respects can be protective. And what that means is that really it's a way to sort of minimize damage compared to sort of a sedentary or an untrained animal. So it'll, you'll see less damage in a traumatic situation and, and you'll see less um, or a uh, sort of reduced uh, severity of a multiple sclerosis. Um, and I, I have no reason to think that after spinal cord injury, there would be anything different uh, related to, you know, to those Compared to those experiments, I think we would see similar results. Mm -hmm. One thing that we have done is that we've also looked at sort of the prolonged effect of exercise in a different way after injury. And so what we do is after the spinal cord injury, we start exercising animals early after their injury. We exercise them for about a month. And then we stop the exercise and we follow the animals and, and we monitor their uh, sensation and we measure whether or not they develop uh, hypersensitivity or neuropathic pain. And what we see is that 10 weeks after we stop the exercise, that the animals 
are actually, I think it's 82% of the animals have um, normal sensation, where if we had done no exercise, we would only have 60% of the animals with normal sensation. Even with just a four-week period of exercise, we're able to um, see some prolonged effects. And this has some clinical relevance, too, because when you think about a person who sustains a spinal cord injury, they're going to go to the emergency room, they're going to probably have several surgeries um, and have their spinal uh, cord decompressed, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to be stabilized. They'll be sent to a rehab uh, hospital where they'll receive physical therapy, occupational therapy, and hopefully, and more and more, we're seeing uh, these facilities do uh, actual treadmill training with spinal cord injured patients. And so they'll receive this this sort of aerobic exercise for several weeks, and then they go home, and then the exercise stops. So, you know, we want to know how effective could that really be? And, and so our, our data, at least in the, in the lab here, is suggesting that, that that's really could be important and have some lasting benefits for them, at least in terms of pain. Yeah, I'd imagine that compliance is hard enough in the case of insisting that patients keep on taking their drugs, let alone in the case of encouraging them to continue with exercise. Participation is hard. I mean, when you think about what it takes to help a spinal cord injured patient get on a treadmill, we call it body weight supported treadmill training, and essentially the patient is put in a um, parachute harness, and part of their weight is taken off, and you have several physical therapists who are there who help this person to walk on the treadmill. Mm-hmm. One person has one leg, one person has another leg, somebody is helping move their arms, you've got someone else potentially helping balance them, holding their hips, um, you know, and so... There, there's a lot that goes into that. And so when, when you go home and it's just you and your caretaker, it's, that's likely not going to happen. There are more sort of outpatient, at rehab hospitals, there's sort of outpatient gyms where they can go and they can get assistance, but they also have to be able to get there. And mm-hmm. mobility just in general is, is difficult for a spinal cord injured person. Yeah. Or at least harder than for you or me to mm-hmm. get to the gym. Now, I'm by no means one of these people who is against using pharmaceuticals to treat anything but it sounds like there's something to be said for using the resources with your own body to try and heal itself yeah yeah for sure I mean you know some of the the things that I remember so when I was in graduate school uh, it was really kind of a unique experience because Michelle my PI had a a basic science lab and she also she was trained as a physical therapist and she also had a clinical lab and so we got to interact with uh, spinal cord injured people and you know really have some conversations and one of the things I can remember is one day I went over to the clinic where we do these training experiments and you know help and rehab spinal cord injured people and I can remember a guy standing up on the treadmill and it must have been he had been off for a while and he said oh I forgot I was tall you know (laughs) I mean I think that's an example of you know when he stands up and gets upright on the treadmill oh I forgot I was tall you know yeah for me, you sit there and you think, I think, oh, wow, I never would have thought about that. But so exercising is something that, you know, we all can do, and I think can do on some level, but it also has this emotional component and the the satisfaction at the end of it too, that I Mm -hmm. think really can help, help kind of calm the mind and, and make things just seem a little bit better. Now, 
Another potential treatment that's touted as an alternative to pharmaceuticals is the idea of using our own stem cells. So these cells that are kind of lacking in personality, shall we say, that can potentially be trained up to take on the role of, for example, damaged nerve cells as you know, you would be working with in the case of your pain patients. What do you think about that? Well, I, I mean, there have been clinical trials that have used stem cells in spinal cord injured people. And, you know, I think that stem cells are really, they provide a lot of hope for a lot of people. And when you think about the system of spinal cord injury, the, the challenge there is basically you've severed the connection, right? If you think of it as an electrical circuit or as a, an interstate highways with, you know, on ramps and off ramps and things like that, a spinal cord injury is effectively cutting the wire or severe construction, on your interstate, you know. And so when you put a stem cell into an injury environment, you're really asking a lot of it because the injury site is is really not a forgiving place. And there are physical and chemical barriers that, that sort of wall in the lesion. And so when you're putting these, these cells that you're asking to either proliferate, which means to make more of them and, and sort of fill this void, or you're asking them just to merely to survive, you know, you're, you're putting them in a place where our own body is trying to wall that area off. Mm -hmm. and so you're asking a lot. There are a lot of studies in spinal cord injury that really are trying to uh, use uh, stem cells or these kind of precursor cells to uh, connect the relay and sort of repair the, the damage or repair the connection by adding a new, a new neuron into the system. So what you're asking to happen is really complicated because you put this cell in, you say, all right, now differentiate or turn into a neuron. And now make a connection to the neuron that used to be your target. So mm -hmm. send an axon out, find the right one. Oh, you don't know what the right one's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And also get your connections from the brain that's telling you where to go. So, you know, you have to make two connections, not just one. And so that's, that can be really a, a complicated thing. This actually brings us rather nicely to a question that we had from Andrew at the previous recording of this podcast which was earlier you were talking about the sprouting right and so we have improper sprouting or, or we just have sprouting that leads right. to improper connections right so my curious thing there is just talking about the stem cells we're transplanting these stem cells in how do we guarantee that we're going to get proper connection it feels like we're right. kind of just coming full circle so targeting is is really complicated and it's hard because you know we can do a lot in, in our field, in the regeneration field, has done a lot to show that we can make some connections and that we can get some outgrowths from these uh, grafts of stem cells, right? Uh, and we can see outgrowth. But really targeting is a challenge. One, we need more axons to grow out or more cells to make connections. And then we can work, start working on, okay, how do we make sure these are the right connections? Mm -hmm. You also mentioned very briefly that you look at inflammation in these models of pain. And we had a question regarding this from Shen. There are these labs right now that are working with uh, changing the microbiome uh, in the person. Uh, and I think Philip Popovich is one of the leading labs looking at. Would you expect a change in the microbiome of the human body uh, would uh, be able to positively affect the inflammation problem that you get with exercise if you change the bacterial content of the gut. 
So the microbiome is really interesting. You know, one of the, the things that I don't think I said last time uh, was really that when we talk about the microbiome, really the definition is that you have just tons and tons of these tiny uh, microbial cells that are, um, you know, all over in our body and they far outnumber our human cells. I think that's something. I believe it's 10 to 1 microbial to human cells. It's at least 10 to 1. It's something just really almost mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. I can't, you know, I can't fathom it. And, and one thing that's really um, prominent is that these microbial cells are really found primarily in the gut, um, or we at least have a lot of them there. And, and in my mind, you know, pop culture, we have learned about the microbiome or at least, you know, sort of gut uh, bacteria through these um, probiotic yogurts and mm-hmm. things like that. You know, the good, the good bacteria that you need. And I think, you know, there's some truth to that. Um, Phil Popovich um, and uh, another senior scientist in his lab, Chrissy Kigrell, um, are looking at the effects of the microbiome, um, especially the gut microbiome on spinal cord injury and, and sort of outcomes and recovery. Um, in particular, how if you manipulate the microbiome after injury, can you, um, you know, sort of protect the nervous system from damage? And and she's got some pretty interesting data. I'm not sure. I saw it at a meeting, uh, I think, last year. It really is striking how just some seemingly small change can really affect how severe the injury is and, mm-hmm. and or not, right? How you can improve the recovery ultimately. And that's really pretty striking. Now, the last time we spoke, you actually talked to us a little bit about what inspired you with regards to your work. Can you tell us why it is that you keep doing what you do, given that this is not an easy field? When I was a, uh, just starting as a postdoc in John Hulay's lab at Drexel University, which is where I'm at now, um, I was awarded a grant, a postdoctoral fellowship. Uh, from the Paralyzed Veterans of America. And it ended up, much to my surprise, that they liked it so much, and, and I was the um, top scorer, that they asked me to come to their annual board of directors meeting. It was really a humbling moment for me because I went and I, you know, was talking to the people I was directly trying to help. And, and these were people who had sacrificed for me. And so, and I think I talked to everybody as they left. It was like a... Um, uh, receiving line at a wedding and one by one they told me their stories about when I started exercising or when I started walking more with a cane or you know their other assistive devices instead of spending so much time you know in their wheelchairs um, how much they felt better or how you know just being out and being active uh, helped seem to lessen their pain that that really you know kind of made my day it really um, sort of solidified why I do what I do, and I think about that often, and um, it, it gives me sort of hope to, to kind of keep going and that, it, that it's all worth it. So very appropriate, given that it was Veterans Day yesterday. Oh, yeah, that's true. And on that note, we should probably let you go to, so that you can carry on with your grant application and the hopes of continuing the excellent work that you do. Um, thank you again so much for joining us, Megan. Any time that I get uh, to procrastinate grant writing, you know, I'm, I'm all for that.
come to their annual board of directors meeting to talk about um, my plans for my research and and you know what how I intended to to use this fellowship to help uh, learn uh, about spinal cord injury and help you know find some potential therapeutics. So I went, I prepared my talk and, and I go to, to present and I walk into this room that is just filled with, uh, you know, the members of the board, which are all veterans and they all have some paralysis potentially. And some of them with, with overt challenges, right? Physical, uh, challenges because of their service. They introduce me and then they say, um, okay, so here are your slides. And they're like, would you like to sit? And I said, no, that's okay. I'll stand. And then you're like, oh, as I'm in a room full of wheelchairs. just been listening to a two scientist podcast now if you'd like to keep up with our new releases you can follow us on twitter at two scis facebook or google plus using the handle two scientists or for the more old school among you you can check out our website at two scientists.org thanks for tuning in Thank you.
Thank you.